Imagine for a minute that you're one of those people sitting in this land of darkness. The darkness I think that he's describing is this utter darkness, the kind of darkness that Egypt experienced during one of the plagues, this felt darkness. You couldn't see your hand in front of your eyes. This is kind of what's being described. If you're in this darkness, you have no direction. You have no purpose. You have no meaning. You're just sitting there. The, the direct context in which Isaiah is speaking into is when many of the elites of Israel had been shipped off into exile. The leaders, the, the theologians, the, 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 the scholars. It's all of a sudden, all this is taken away from you. So, well, where are we supposed to go? What are we supposed to do? Who's going who's gonna to take us there? We're sitting in darkness, this kind of meaningless oblivion. It's just waiting. The first time we see this word darkness show up in the scriptures is the second verse of the Bible. So we're way back in Genesis, creation of the world. It starts, it says, at the beginning, there was a formless void. Everything was just chaos, meaninglessness. Notice it doesn't say there was nothing. There was, there was something. What, what, the God, what, the, what the Genesis author is trying to tell us is not an historical record. It's not a biological record. He's, he's showing us what God does. And what does he do? Well, he speaks and there's light. And the darkness flees. And then he orders the universe. He gives it purpose and meaning. And he places man and woman in the, in the middle of it and gives them purpose and meaning. That's what God does. That's what the light does. And we see this theme of light and darkness throughout the whole of scripture. The light gives order and meaning and purpose to our lives. And this is what Matthew is speaking into. He's saying the same, the same region that this originally happened, Naphtali, Zebulun, way up in the northern part of Israel, the northern tribes. This is where Jesus first shows up on the scene. It's the light stepping into the darkness. And lest we think that Matthew is making this huge jump and just changing the topic, stay with that theme. Here's these four fishermen who, this random preacher guy who they probably, maybe they've seen him a couple times, maybe not, but he says, come follow me, and they just drop everything instantaneously. They're so quick just to drop everything and follow him. Why? Because they've been living in the land of darkness, purposelessness, meaninglessness. Why are they fishermen? Oh, because they happened to grow up near the sea and their dads were fishermen and they needed to pay the bills somehow and so they became fishermen. But it's just darkness until Jesus, the light of the world, steps in and says, hey, I have a meaning and a purpose for your life. Follow me and I'll show you what it is. And that's the great adventure when we let the light into our lives. And brothers and sisters, we're the ones to living in this land of darkness if we don't have the light of Christ. And actually the, 
antithesis of walking and living in the light is uh, best summed up, I think, by something that Justice Anthony Kennedy said several decades ago. He said this, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Well, that sounds really nice. But if you're sitting in that felt oblivion, darkness, it doesn't matter if you think you're the king of France, you're still just sitting in darkness, twiddling your thumbs. There's nothing you can do about it. So yeah, that's great. I would love to define my own existence, my own meaning, the purpose of the universe. That's, that's great. And it sound, sounds kind of exciting, invigorating, until we look at the effects of it. What do we see today around the world, in our own country? Suicide rates are going way up. Birth rates are going way down. Those are indicators of a people who are not really thrilled with life. To create my own meaning is bland and boring. It's not fulfilling. Because I think at the heart of it, we realize that I can't do that. It's impossible. And even though I kind of want this liberty of doing whatever, else, whatever I want, it doesn't add up. We don't do this with anything else in the world. I don't look at my car and say, yeah, my car, I will, I will impose the meaning on you and I will tell you how I will use you and what I will put in you. I am free to put mustard into the oil chamber and ketchup into the gas tank. Yes, you are free to do that and you are free to walk also. But we can't impose the meaning on our own life. It, it comes up short again and again and again. But fortunately for us, Jesus has come into our darkness and he has the way, he's the truth, he's the life. He wants to show us where to go and what to do and how to get there. He's told us the meaning of life. It's been preserved for us in sacred scripture and passed down for us in the church. And nothing else will do. And one thing that's very important to know is that life is a test. Sometimes the atheists hurl accusations at God. Is this the best world you could come up with? And he says, no. No, it's not. I'm saving that. I got something way better. And it's a place of perfect happiness, unending happiness. Has anybody ever experienced perfect happiness? Maybe for like five seconds, but unending perfect happiness? Oh, that's something worth pursuing. Now, there's this... Um, there's a story about this young man who's the youngest in his family. His older brother was like 10 or 12 years older than him. And his family was fairly well off. And so his 16th birthday came around and he was super excited because he knew that he was going to get like a, a really nice car. And he wakes up that morning, goes out of the driveway and he finds 
a really busted up old junky car. And he's, he's just really mad because he knows his parents can afford a nice car. And the first several weeks, he doesn't even drive it because he's so embarrassed and he just doesn't even want to show any gratitude to his parents anyway. But then he realizes like, well, I might as well make the most of this thing. And so he starts driving it and he piles his friends in. They see how many people they can fit in the back seat and they're eating their McDonald's and throwing the trash on the ground. And, and he's, he's driving around corners as fast as he can on the old dirt roads and just whipping it around every single end. And he sees a, a two-track and he's going on that even though this is just an 88 Toyota Camry. And he's just busting up the shocks and he's not shifting gears right and everything. And before long, it's just totally trashed. And his older brother catches wind of this and he calls him up and he's like, bro, what's your problem? Are you a fool? That wasn't the gift, that was the test. Mom and dad were seeing what you would do with this car and if you treated it well and kept it up, they were gonna buy you a Ford Mustang. You blew it. If we treat the test like the gift, we're going to treat it wrongly. No one ever took a test and was like, oh, that was so fun. When's the next one? No, the test is for what it allows me to do. I take my nursing exam so I can become a nurse. I take my, my uh, bar so I can become a lawyer. I take the SAT so I can get into a good college. If I don't treat the test as a test, I'm going to blow the test. And if we treat this life as if it's the end game, it's the thing that we got and that's it, we're not going to treat it right. But if it's a test, this changes everything. Every moment is a moment I'm being tested. And it's not a trick, trick, trick test. We know, that, we know the questions. Do you love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength? And do you love your neighbor as yourself? Those are the only two questions. They just come up over and over and over again in different ways. And the examiner is not trying to trick you. He's actually trying to help you. He's standing right there waiting for you to ask him what the answers are because he wants to give you the answers. He wants to give you the answers and he wants to give you the strength to do them. So now, my life is totally different. I have great wealth. Oh, Lord, what, what do you want me to do with my great wealth? I'm in poverty. Lord, what do you want me to do in my poverty? I'm suffering. Lord, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to respond in this suffering? I'm rejoicing. Lord, how do you want me to thank you in this rejoicing? Lord, what do you want me to do in my life? The question goes from, what do I want to do? What do I want to be? What do I want the meaning and purpose of my life to be? To Lord, what do you have for me? What do you want me to do? How do you want me to spend my time? How do you want me to spend my money? How do you want me to treat other people? 
And when we ask him, he will show us. Now, I realize that sometimes it seems like he only gives us a little tiny glimpse. It's not like he turns on, you know, a floodlight. He just lights a candle. And all we can see is the very next step. Go back to that man sitting in this dark oblivion. You got nothing, and now you got a little candle. Well, that's something. I can't see where the path ends, but I can see that there's a path right there. I can see that that next step is a safe step. I might might look around with, with my light, and I see, well, I see that that one goes off the cliff, so at least I know not to walk that way. But the light gives meaning, purpose, and direction to my life. And that's all I need. I only need to know the next step. Lord, what do you want me to do right now in this situation? Lord, how do you want me to react in this moment right here and now? And then when I get to that step, I can ask the question again. Okay, Lord, now I'm here. How do you want me to react here? How do you want me to behave in this circumstance? Where do you want me to go from here? And little by little, the Lord continues to show us the way. The way that leads to that place of perfect and endless happiness. I'd like to end with a a stanza of a poem by St. John Henry Newman. I think it encapsulates a lot of what we're talking about in the gospel and this theme of light and darkness and this one step at a time. Picture a man kind of walking through the woods with just a lantern. That's all he has and all he can see is the next step. And it goes, lead kindly light amidst the encircling gloom. Lead thou me on. The night is dark and I am far from home. Lead thou me on. Keep thou my feet. I do not ask to see the distant scene. One step enough for me.